Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. The author David Shields was promoting two books at once on the Bretty Stanellis podcast, and he mentioned this quote by the psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan that I went around repeating to everyone for days, not quite sure how I felt about it, and the quote is this, Love is giving something you don't have to someone who doesn't want it. Let me say it again for reasons that'll be apparent in a moment. Love is giving something you don't have to someone who doesn't want it. This quote really rang my bell for some reason, and I think I was trying to parse out exactly what I felt about it, and so I kept telling it to people um, all throughout the day, oh, the next few days. And as I was telling this quote to people, uh, it was interesting to notice the same reaction in every person I told it to. What would happen is this. I would tell them the line, and then they would squint a little. They would repeat it to themselves out loud, parsing it, and then, after repeating it to themselves, they would reach a verdict about whether they liked it or not, or whether they agreed with it, I should say which usually they didn't. Maybe 90% of the time they, they did not. They would hear it, and then they would grimace, and then they would say, oh, it's such a dark sentiment, it's so sad, and you know, they would suggest that any person who feels such a way about love probably just hasn't experienced it. I've got a friend named Dave, though, who's had some rough luck with dating. He's had two long relationships in the past decade, each one with a partner he entertained mostly for company, and both of those affairs were basically fine, except that they just... They were having a nice time with one another, but it wasn't anything promising in the long term. One of my bonding points with Dave ever since we first met has always been, like, the travails of online dating, and he's had it worse than I have, because... Dave is in his mid-30s, and as much as he's attuned to the realities of life and the scarcity of what he's looking for amongst women his own age, in terms of their, their life and work situation, Dave just does not want to date anyone who's got kids. He loves kids, and he's great with them, but he's got a lot of obligations, and there's some disquieting ambiguity about what exactly his role would be as the partner of a single parent. And like, like he's wondering, you know, how, how much harder will it be to synchronize schedules? Uh, how often will the kid have to join them when they're hanging out? Hanging out, you know, will the cost of a babysitter become this noose around their evenings? As a result, Dave often finds himself in conversation on these dating apps with women overseas, young professionals who fit the bill of everything that he wants, and but who, alas, are over the sea. And he does get really invested, and understandably so, but for all of the passion and ardency with which these conversations unspool over the course of so many days, you know, with Dave and his correspondent both genuinely alarmed to have, like, finally found what appears to be the exact thing that they're looking for, the conversation invariably fizzles out. The distance just becomes too much to reconcile. The routine here of his heart being made to swell and swell and then abruptly deflate after two or three weeks of kind of aimless swiping and scrolling, it's pushed David to the brink of like a very serious kind of despair on a couple of occasions now. It's just this, and I understand it, it's this hopeless feeling that he's invested money in these apps and these websites, and, and he feels that he's just exhausted every avenue of companionship that's available for somebody who, you know, like him, is not really down for the bar scene. He's a homebody, and he's ambitious, and he's cerebral, and he wants to meet someone along those lines, but it's hard. Anyways. But so he reaches these really dark patches, and, and he, he's open about it, and we talk through it. He has a, you know, a dark night of the soul or two, and then, eventually, he gets back on the horse. It reminds me of this great bit, actually, from a movie that came up on the list in 1939. It was uh, Jean Renoir's... Um, the rules of the game, where there are these two these two dudes are talking about heartbreak and like the road to recovery, and one guy says to the other one in consolation, he says that uh, what you do after a heartbreak is you you sit around moping for a while, you know you suffer and you suffer and you suffer and you suffer, and then one day 
you wake up and notice that the concierge's daughter is very pretty, and suddenly you're on the road to recovery. Anyway, g given how discouraged Dave often gets about dating, I should have known better than to confront him so, like, in such a perky way the other day and say, Hey, Dave, I heard this interesting quote by Lacan. Because Dave is literally the only person I recited the quote to who did not have the generic reaction, like the pause, the pensive scowl, the parsing of parts, the slow interpretation, and, and then like the outright dismissal of its nihilism or whatever. But I went up to him and I was like, Hey, Dave. And then I told him the whole thing, you know, love is the thing that you don't have, that you give to the people who don't want it. And Dave, with his default smile drooping at one corner, just gave me the most somber nod, and he cocked his brow and said, yeah, wow, I feel that. Dave is a bubbly guy. Every, everybody loves him. And like the rest of us, he's got troubles and skeletons and things to fret about, but he's better at compartmentalizing his issues than just about anybody I know. Dave will be four hours into a conversation before alluding in passing to the fact that, like, he got, he got stabbed the night before. He's always got a smile, he's always got a pep in his step. So I can't say that the quote really soured him for the rest of our shift, but there was, this, there was definitely like a shadow over, hanging over his head. And the shadow proved contagious because I developed one of my own, but if Dave's shadow was colored with, like, angst and romantic despair, then mine was colored with shame because how could I have been so dumb as to burden him with something something like this? The, 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 it's just, you know, the quote sounded kind of clever and, like, wise in, in quotes, and, and, you know, I figured I, I figure a fitting thing to say about wisdom is that it's the thing that you don't have and that you give to people who don't ask for it. <laughs> No, man, they try to do too much shit. It's like DC was trying to catch up to Marvel in one movie. Yeah. Like, are you guys fucking crazy? You're gonna you're gonna try to do Mickey Mouse shit in one movie? Mickey Mouse! The, the thing about sharing the Lacan quote with Dave made me think about a lot of things, mostly about what an asshole I am, but it also reminded me of this idea, and it sounds kind of stuffy when I think back on it, but the idea of like the, the quote-unquote danger of books and of learning. I took a, I took a couple of classes on um, postmodern literature in college, and I remember that uh, one of the ideological threads that ran through those both courses, which were taught by the same professor, was this idea that some critic had pitched in an essay. I forget his name. I might have been Eagleton or something, but it was about the violence of reading. There was some flighty idea to it about, like, the death of the author and, and the breaking of barriers between the identities of author and reader. An example of what I think simplifies it comes uh, from Stephen King's book On Writing, where he gives this little thought exercise that illustrates what he, con what, he what he calls the telepathic aspect of reading and of writing. So King's idea is this. Let's say that he tells you in a story that there is, quote, a rabbit in a cage, end quote. And let's say that I'm reading that sentence as an adult, but as a little kid, I had an obese gray pet rabbit. And, and let's say I really liked the rabbit. Um, well, I will probably envision a fat gray rabbit when Stephen King tells me to envision a rabbit in a cage, because that's the kind of rabbit that I had a formative experience with. Now, let's say that you, on the other hand, you never had a pet rabbit, but you were maybe traumatized as a kid because, you know, one day your dog came sauntering into the house with like a dead white 
bunny in his mouth. Maybe that little white fluff is what your own ex life experience has conditioned you to imagine whenever somebody tells you to close your eyes and think of a rabbit in a cage. So Stephen King, the author of that sentence, he wrote it while envisioning a rabbit whose physical properties were informed by his own personal experiences. And so all three of us, Stephen King and me and you, uh, in a way, we have, we have, we've read the same sentence, but we have authored in our head our own distinct images of different types of bunnies in different types of cages in different types of rooms. And maybe the bunny that I see, because it was my beloved pet, it evokes warm childhood memories, you know, of cuddling with a, with a family, pet, whatever, while the bunny that you see evokes terrible memories of your dog running up w with his tail wagging and tossing a little corpse into your lap. And, and those feelings that are evoked from our personal images, they will influence how we proceed through King's story and how we interpret every subsequent image. In that respect, none of us ever truly reads the same book. It's colored by how our lives have conditioned us to interpret certain images and certain words and phrases, or such at least is this, this one dude's philosophy. So the quote-unquote like violence of reading that my professor and this philosopher dude were talking about, it has more to do with how, how we find a kind of peace and complacency and a sense of like self and belonging and whatever within certain intellectual structures. And they give us this illusory sense of shape and meaning and order to the universe. Now, maybe that structure for you is, is the ideology of a political party or a religion, or maybe it's an idea of, of racial supremacy. Maybe it's even just the fact that you're, you're from Miami or that you're a Scorpio. You've got a certain bad habit, let's say. And rather than investigating yourself and unpacking all of your traumas and hang-ups and disappointments and whatever in order to find out the root of your problem, you just throw up your hands and say, well, I'm a, I'm a Jewish Scorpio from Miami. I was raised in a Cuban household, and that's why I, I only date, you know, toxic people or, or whatever, something like that. Their point was that by seeing yourself as a small cog in a larger group or a system, that it absolves you to a degree of responsibility for your own actions. And and what I, what I think to have remembered having been the point of that whole, you know, reading is a violent experience idea, is that if you are a serious reader, an avid reader who reads widely and critically, then your ideas of life will be constantly called into question. Every intellectual structure that you try to build around yourself will be constantly deconstructed by these new challenges that you're coming across in the pages of one book or another. The door to your mind is always going to be open, and the wind is going to be wafting new shit in there all the time, and some of it will be beautiful, and some of it will be scary and bad, but it's, it's all going to come together and create a really vibrant kind of, you know, in ecosystem of ideas. Wait, I, I don't know, I don't, okay, I don't know why I'm going down this road. Look, what I'm, what I'm kind of getting at with the Stephen King example, and with the story of, you know, my friend Dave's reaction to that quote about love, is that the risk of certain kinds of ideas what it might be is that you come across them while you're suffering a certain kind of angst. There's some kind of pain for which you haven't yet found the right words. You can't name it, and that's part of why it's so bad, is because it's amorphous. If a thing has a shape, and if it has a name, then you can diagnose it. You can dance around it. You can attack it. If it's shapeless, then it's both everywhere and not. It's both big and it's small, you know, depending on your mood. But so then one day you're reading something, and some savvy nihilistic wordsmith comes along and he puts your pain into what appear to be the perfect words. And suddenly you say to yourself, oh, that's it. It isn't that I'm just temporarily in, you know, some kind of slump. It's that love is, is this ephemeral thing that we're all doomed to chase on a treadmill and it'll never be reciprocated and I'm going to die alone and so on and so on. The, the poeticization of the pain can, can give you this, 
this kind of harrowing illusion of its permanence. I, I don't know. This all sounds very flighty. I'm sorry. This is what, but my point is that this is what worried me about Dave's reaction to the Lacan quote. I was giving myself a hard time about it afterward and, and feeling like it would be wise to do a little self-censoring at times. Try, try to just get a rope about around my enthusiasm and, and keep in mind that some people have had experiences that don't quite endear them toward, you know, the morbid shit that, toward which I am always endeared. I am, I'm thinking it would just be it would just be prudent and considerate to exercise caution when you know that you're talking to a person with certain hang-ups and fears to just not bombard them with 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 morbid little curios that are going to yeah, you know trigger them i guess in other words if you know your friend is lovesick don't say some flowery eloquent lovesick shit to him cuz it, it it isn't a very tall order for you to just sort of keep your mouth shut. I I'm talking to myself about this it's easy for me as a writer who's trying to turn out tons of blog posts and podcasts every week as somebody who is constantly on the lookout for you know galvanizing new material it's easy for me to say that you know one of the high points in life is pursuing and confronting different sorts of upsetting subject matter but what about Dave? He works two jobs, four days a week, and then on Friday, on Friday it's just his first job, which is at a hospital of all places. Most nights, most most days, he's 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 out at work from 6:30 in the morning until 9 p.m. Does it make sense that he would want to, you know, color his few hours of leisure time with the sort of you know morbid shit that I I maybe I find stimulating? Probably not. So I'm thinking maybe I should you know keep keep this dark shit. To, to myself, no matter how interesting I find it. Or, or actually, better yet, just sit on it, think about it, write it down somewhere, and then foist it upon you, which is a privilege that I'm, I'm very thankful for. I saw Justice League in a theater, sober, and I don't remember shit about it. I don't remember shit. What happened in that movie, bro? I don't remember a single thing. That movie was fucking stupid, man. It was. Damn, bro, Jerry's fluff, man. Here's your fluffy ears. Here's your fluffy. Did I tell you about the Bear Center? I don't know enough about Gore Vidal's body of work to either confirm or deny that this little anecdote took place as it's recounted, but the story has it that Gore Vidal, who was you know public intellectual, big writer from the mid-20th century, that at some point in, in the 60s or the 70s, he said something really scathing about a book that Norman Mailer had just written. Something, the highbrow version of like, yo, you suck at your job. Like that, like something really intense. And so they, they both happen to be at the same party a couple weeks after Vidal makes these remarks. And Mailer, across the room, he sees Gore Vidal. And so he walks up to him and he says, hey, uh, uh, Gore, did you did you say that my book sucked? I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And Vidal says, yeah, uh, maybe, something along those lines, sure. And so Mailer punches the shit out of him. Vidal goes face down on the floor. Mailer walks away. A crowd starts gathering around. Everyone's gasping, clutching their pearls and shit. And so Vidal's on the rug, and he, you know, he rolls over, and he, he sits up, and he touches the blood on his lip, and he looks around at the gathering crowd, and he says, Once again, words fail, Norman Mailer. Picking your brain about, you know, kind of, I guess what we would call throwaway action movies, um, schlocky stuff. But I have this issue about, I don't know this, I don't know if it's ridiculous, this preciousness about my time and should I be doing something more productive. And like lately I've gotten interested in, because given the release, oh fuck, what the fuck were they, oh, 
I had this great moment oh, like last weekend, uh, Memorial Day weekend, someone posted a link to an article about how Ridley Scott is apparently in talks, at least with Disney, about a third Alien? prequel. Yeah. A serious discussion formulated amongst many of them outside of what I could participate in, talking about the novels in the Alien universe yeah. and the Predator stuff and the, uh-huh. and the comics too, more so. There's a part of me that really wishes I could take part in that fandom because those people really dig it. Yeah. And um, yeah. they they go at it with the same fervor as like the religious discuss their books. Sure. And um, sure. and I look at those alien novels and they're only like two hundred pages. Yeah. But there's a part of me that's like, well, I could read two hundred pages of Melville. And like, <laughs> it's not that I want to, but there's this like conscientious thing of like I should. And so well, there's that's a, the difference between. Yeah, there's a part of me that's like, I kind of I am curious to see the latest Steven Seagal train wreck. But that's 90 minutes where I could be getting through Godard picture number 17 <laughs> yeah. on the movie. Well, you also have that that sort of um, the list. Where, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't have that. Like, I'm, I'm I right. just, I want something. Like, a lot of times when I'm just like dead to the world, I want to just watch something that I don't have to think too much about. Right. Like when you give me a very impassioned appraisal of something like Phantom Thread, as highbrow as it was, and you loved it, and you loved it with the passion of the film scholar. Yeah. And then in your exegesis of that movie, you digress and you're like, you know, I know Jean-Claude Van Damme has done X, Y, and Z. And, and like, you can make a joking but informed reference to the other thing. And that, the reference in itself is not interesting, but it adds a texture to the larger picture of your like, did this guy in a very loquacious <laughs> breakdown of the merits of you know the most art house movie of the year just cite fucking what's the John Claude Van Damme surfing a motorcycle over an overpass? <laughs> that was a hard target. Hard target, which I did see. I did see that one. I liked it. I liked it. Well, I think that warehouse scene at the oh my god, and the old man with the crossbow. Yes. Or the bone arrow. Yes. And, and, that was and, Wilfred Brimley, by the way. Not just any really. old man. The old man. Yeah. Diabetes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And didn't he swing kick a grenade back into the arm of the person who threw it? Like, there's just so much ridiculous no. things. Um, there's a fantastic moment where um, the bad guys on motorcycles come in and they start shooting um, at, at anything that moves and, and they shoot a, he shoots a bird. And, uh, and uh, so he's looking up, and he's shooting up at the rafters, and then um, Jean-Claude Van Damme is standing in front of him. John Wood directed this. This is his, this is his American oh, really? debut, yeah. Um, he's standing in front of him, and he goes, Hey, pigeon! It's fantastic. And he kicks over a gas canister, kicks it into the air, and then shoots it with a shotgun and blows the guy out the, out the window on his motorcycle. What is his nationality? He's Belgian. He's Belgian. Um, I also really liked Cyborg. You know, I never saw it, but I, I sort of... Just such a mess. The dude who yeah. plays the villain was famous for something, right? It was like a... But something trivial. It was a wrestler or, or a music video. I don't remember. Yeah, I see. I never saw it. I never saw it. That was one of those where, like, I wanted to see it as a kid, but I was too young. Because uh-huh. it was R-rated and, and this and that. And then, like, um, it, it, the director is Albert Payun, P-Y-U-N. He's done a lot of B-movies. Um, I'm trying to think... People have liked some of his big movies. Um, but the way you're, you're suggesting that got a theatrical release when you were a kid, did. Cyborg was a... Yeah, okay. I actually remember... Um, well, there, I guess there was no straight-to-video. Was that prior to VHS? Oh, no, or the, don't make me that The old. earliest of VHS. <laughs> well, you were saying you were a kid. You were under 17. Yeah, I, um, let me see. That was 19... I think it was 89, I think. Was, was there a straight-to-video market in the late 80s? Yeah. I thought that was 90s. Um, I'm trying to think now. I mean, because cassettes were so expensive in the '80s, right? Yeah, but that was just to buy. I mean, remember we uh, had Blockbuster since, and Blockbuster was, of course, the uh, th- that's when videos went went sort of mega. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, I, we were renting videos when I when we lived in Germany, like in 1980. 
1984. Uh, so up, up up until before DVDs came out, VHS tapes were not so, were not priced to sell. They, they At were all, priced, really? Yeah, they they would only there would only be certain ones that would like. Um, like they when Star do. Wars, yeah, Star Wars okay. would come out. Everybody wants to buy it. They they would say it's twenty bucks, whatever, on VHS. That's reasonable. Yes, and that that would be those would be the exceptions. I remember okay. actually Dances with Wolves of all movies was was um, was there was such a fervor for it, and when it came out, it was actually for sale. And so that was released. And that a big deal about that one was that it was three uh, movies like three and a half hours long. Really? And uh, yeah, and they put it on one VHS tape because they were like we didn't we didn't want to make they didn't want to make it on the two VHS right. tapes and. Um, um, they had to thin the tape so much to put so much onto the one cassette that there were like mass like the, the tape would just break because uh. it, was, it was too brittle. So no, it, it wasn't until DVDs came out when movies were priced to sale to, for sale all of them. But with the VHS market, they they would price it. What would be funny was so I used to work at Blockbuster, right. as you know. And um, what would be funny was that whenever someone would destroy a tape. They would say, "Okay, oh, my my son did this to the tape or whatever. How much is it? And like hundred dollars." And they're like, "What?" Oh my god! And they're like, "Yeah, they're not priced to sell." So they they so yeah so MSRP for movies was always like a hundred bucks. They um, we we would never we, you could never get people to pay a hundred dollars for a broken tape. So we would always sell it to them as a, what we call the previously viewed. So because what would happen was so at Blockbuster when movies so let's say Saving Private Ryan comes out right now you have to have. 400 copies available right. for the first couple of weeks everybody's going to rent them but after a while nobody wants to rent it so you're stuck with 400 copies of the movie right. now some you send back to the studio right but a lot of them are yours and so you price them to sell it as previously viewed movies those are like five ten dollars whatever right so um uh, we would sell it to, to to people then for the previously viewed price but yeah when you would look it up in a computer movie vhs movies were, were priced for at a hundred at a hundred dollars because it, they they thought that people were not interested in buying anything but the biggest releases right and it was only when dvds came out that they're like oh shit people really want to just buy anything they don't right. give a shit so steven seagal and jean-claude van damme i mean their movies made money i mean time cop opened up in num- in first place it was jean-claude's first and only <laughs> well that also has a lot of sex in it right and his movies generally don't time cop it had no, no. There was not much sex. There, there was one like just completely gratuitous like, uh, new, uh, nude scene in there. Okay. Um, but no, apparently Jean Claude Van Damme like his movies would just they would always open like in second, third, fourth place. But they would just you know they didn't cost that much. But even in those days, opening in second, third, or fourth place was and like kind of sticking around for a couple of months, like you know so like they, they made money right. and, and um, they, they were attributing it to Jean-Claude Van Damme which is kind of funny to think now was that men like to watch it because of the action but women like to watch it because he was I don't know like handsome had but also just, but I mean he had the body and, had and so he would always show it off like Steven Seagal <laughs> would not show any he had nothing to show off right. uh, he was always kind of pudgy so um, yeah so he was still well 10 years prior to no Maybe I guess 15, about yeah. 15 years ago he was still in theaters there was that movie Cradle to the Grave that he did, I think, with DMX. That was his big comeback. That that they, they were they were putting that as that he lost forty pounds for the movie. Really? Uh, and it's hilarious because okay, so well you watch it and he's still overweight. <laughs> yeah, he's still overweight, and there's a, there's a scene where um, it, Michael Jai White is in it. Um, hmm. um, there, but there's a <laughs> Cradle to the Grave has a great um, fight scene. Like <laughs> they're in a they're in a police locker room. And, and of course, uh, all the guys are these jacked up motherfuckers like, 
fucking greasy and cut and everything, and they're beating each other up. And Steven Seagal, so they all have their shirts off. And, and Steven Seagal is on his shirt off. <laughs> and you're like, look, <laughs> if you're directing the movie, don't make sure everybody else has their shirt on. You know, like if you know Steven Seagal can't take it off, make everybody else wear a shirt. You know what I mean? Like, well, I remember. I, I don't know if we were working together at the time, but a few years ago, I went through a spell where I watched, fast forwarded through. A number of his um, Netflix movies because a bunch of them appeared on uh, Netflix yeah. like overnight, and they I saw that though. they have stopped giving him a romantic interest. There's always a yeah. damsel in distress, but he plays an avuncular or yeah. paternal figure yeah. in rescuing her. Yeah, um, I think they've also I noticed they also have kind of castrated John Rambo, and Rocky Balboa was never you know he was carnal, always he was loyal always, to um, Adrian um, Adrian. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's part of why people are so compelled by uh, Stallone. Like in that movie, that book about Hollywood's influence on American sexuality, Sleeping mm-hmm. with Strangers, that I was reading, they talk. Uh, the writer draws it back to Rudolph Valentino, mm. of like he was a hugely sexual figure just for the culture because he was the first one where like women were in love with him and they went, and men felt tremendous anxiety because he was he was chiseling this new idea of what a man was lots yeah. of makeup you have to be good at salsa or mm-hmm. what no the tango um, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I think with Schwarzenegger maybe there is a feeling or of well, I don't know sexual competition or there is something or there isn't I would say I don't know well he has ha- well they both usually have a romantic interest they do but like it, it's, it's it's again it, it's Maybe kind of going back to what we were talking about, like where um, th- that was the kind of thing. But Jean Claude Van Damme was pretty, you know what I mean? Like, like even like he was tough and, enough. And the foreign, th- the exotic. Yes, you know, and and so he kind of he kind of had that sort of feminine quality to him a little bit. Yes, that, you're that right. Women responded to. And you're then, right. Yeah, I but, and, but Schwarzenegger would never have that. And then I was watching um, Godard on Dick Cabot. Okay. And uh, they oh, were talking. Yeah, it was 1980, <clears throat> and oh. they're talking about Jerry Lewis and how in France he's revered as this great artist, capital yeah. A, and over here he was a clown. Yeah. And um, so I went on some dates with that girl who went to the Sorbonne for a while. I don't think she graduated from there. Oh, okay. And she spent a couple years in France, and then she ran out of money, so she couldn't finish there, so she had to come back. But I asked her last night, were there figures in American figures, American media figures? Who, when they were in France, that were weirdly popular that you were disarmed by. Yeah. Um, she said she couldn't remember. But she was like, "That sounds like I've had that experience, but I just can't remember the names." Well, uh, in Germany, we had. I mean, it's a famous. Oh, one. that's right. So you, Hasselhoff, right? Yeah, David Hasselhoff. I mean, like that's the only reason why Baywatch ever ever continued past the first season was was because there was a European outcry, a German outcry, <clears throat> when uh, when they canceled, when NBC really? canceled it, and and so they were like, "You can't cancel this. We need this." Huh. And so. Um, What's it called? Syndication picked it up instead. Because so the first season was on NBC. I think it had a little more of a of a budget back then, um, and then then it was picked up in syndication, and and then it became remember it became the most popular show around the whole world. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and to read our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.